Hey y'all. So when it comes to bodies, weight loss is not really something that I'm pursuing right now. But as you know, one of Vanessa's family members has been taking a GLP-1 medication and it's worked really well for him. So if that is part of your journey, you should check out the Roe Body Program. Roe provides access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Roe's partner handles all the insurance paperwork to help get the medication covered. If eligible for medication, patients have access to their provider on demand for any questions. Go to ro.co slash infamous. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash infamous. Campsite Media. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Infamous, our series about infamous figures in American culture. Sometimes you'll be hearing from me, sometimes from a guest host, and sometimes from my co-host, Gabriel Sherman, who is with us this week to tell us an incredible tale. Before Gabe gets going, I'll tell you a little bit about him. We've known each other about 15 years, I'd say, since we both worked at New York Magazine. He covers media, politics, and scandal, and he's one of the most dogged reporters in the game. Today, he's going to tell us a political story, because there's no way to talk about infamous figures in America without talking about politics. This story is about Steve Bannon, a man you could describe as a Republican Rasputin. Now, if you don't fully remember him, he's the far-right conservative who came to prominence in Trump's White House. Nobody else speaks to Trump's base as powerfully as Steve Bannon does. A hardline nationalist. It's America first, in the most literal sense. So now Gabe is going to talk about how he came into contact with Steve Bannon when Gabe was working on a book about the one-time head of Fox News, Roger Ailes. That book was called The Loudest Voice in the Room, and it was later made into a TV show with Russell Crowe and Naomi Watts. Bannon was running a right-wing news site, Breitbart News. A lot of other stuff happened that you'll hear about in a minute, including Bannon having a ton of influence in the White House. But as of today, Bannon is a criminal who was just sentenced to four months in prison. They will never shut me up. They'll have to kill me first. I have not yet begun to fight. Okay, who is Stephen Bannon? I think there are several, there are multiple Steve Bannons. He's living in the multiverse. Steve Bannon is a self-made man, grew up middle to lower middle class in Richmond, Virginia, rolled in the U.S. Navy, served on a warship in the Pacific, went to Harvard Business School, Goldman Sachs, Hollywood, and then politics. I mean, this guy should be everything he hates. And yet I think he took that experience and sort of knew the weak points of the elites that he could then, you know, reverse engineer and target for the right. He's harnessed the dark forces of sort of the American underclass, and now they control the Republican Party. The Republican college-educated women, forget it. Yeah. It's done. But you think they're gone? They're gone. That's not the Republican Party I'm building. Uh-huh. I'm building a worker-based party. Yeah. And so when did he come to his conservative ideology? Well, he's always been conservative, but he's talked about this, that in the mid-2000s, 
he was in Hollywood trying to make it as like a producer, deal maker, and he saw the rise of online gaming. And he went to Asia and he saw that there was these communities of gamers out there who just spent 24-7 on the internet chatting. And these were, you know, they would later become, I guess, known as incels, right? The kind of alt-right, angry young guy. And he saw these guys and he saw how engaged they were. And he realized that this could be the base of a political movement. I said, we're the populist, you know, kind of economic nationalist part of this. Let's attack the real enemy. And the real enemy is the Republican establishment. So he befriended Andrew Breitbart, who had founded the Huffington Post and then veered far to the right and, and founded Breitbart News. Well, just tell us a little bit more about who Andrew Breitbart is, because that's going to become important. So Andrew Breitbart was a right-wing media personality. He's a gadfly from L.A., was plugged in sort of to the early internet scene. And he saw the success of the Huffington Post, and he said, this is liberal, I, don't, I hate these politics, let me do a similar version for the right-wing. And so he started to build his own site. And we're talking like 2004, five? Yeah, 2005 until, um, and then really kind of came into its own in 2010, the Tea Party wave, all of that was really when Breitbart took off. The media says Breitbart lies, Breitbart lies, Breitbart lies, Breitbart lies. Give me one example of a provable lie, one. One. Journalists, one. And Bannon said, I can turn your site, let's turn this site into the nerve center of the new American right. And so Bannon teamed up with Andrew Breitbart and started to build Breitbart News. They got funding from the Mercer family, which is the fortune that was made by Robert Mercer. What did they do again? So he was a multi-billionaire, lived on Long Island, very reclusive, never gave interviews, and became basically a a single-handed builder of the alt-right. Bannon cultivated him, and Mercer just started giving millions of dollars to Republican politicians with hard-right political views. And Bannon tapped into their money to fund Breitbart and used that to build the movement that would ultimately become Donald Trump. I think I have to win. I'm about winning. You're working on your Roger Ailes book. And as you're uncovering stuff about Roger Ailes, are you hearing from Breitbart? Um, Okay, the backing up. In 2011, I'd written a series of stories for New York Magazine about the right wing, cable news. And I thought, well, shit, like there has to be a book about how this movement was built. And very early on in the reporting, everyone I interviewed for the book said, well, to understand Fox News, you have to understand Roger Ailes, that the entire thing comes out of his brain. And when Ailes found out that my book was becoming more of a biography, he just freaked out. I went up to Cold Spring, New York in the summer of 2012, and that's where Ailes had a weekend house and he bought the local newspaper and his was the publisher of the paper. And um, I think when I went up there to start asking around town and interview, try to interview people at the paper, he was like, oh, fuck, like this is like a really personal prof- you know, biography. And he hired PIs and he started you know, funding this right wing smear campaign against me. And the main outlet for all of this, these smear articles that I was like an agent of George Soros, that I was a New York Jew and all these things, um, Breitbart was posting these anonymously written articles that were under the byline Capital Confidential. And they were thousands of words about how I was evil. They were, you know, they were well written. So I, <laughs> I kind of respected their, their effort. Here's one. 
from December 21st, 2012. Exclusive, Soros-backed attack dog expands war on Fox with a big picture of me from my engagement photo shoot with my wife. <laughs> oh my God, it's insane. Um, <laughs> my engagement photo shoot. You have like shaggy hair. I know, it looked like, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, they pulled that off the internet. And the, the, head, the lead, the paragraph reads, one tough assessment of Gabriel Sherman, the over-eager reporter and from a great distance biographer of Roger Ailes. Who said it? A well-placed source. And the source makes a very strong case. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Jesus. Are you serious? And then you can see this thing. It's crazy. So, um, yeah, so these were the stories that were getting splashed on the front page of Breitbart and then getting retweeted by all the right wing. And it was insane. I was like, I got to see how the entire machine operates from the inside. We were going to go down to Pennsylvania to my in-laws' house on Christmas Eve. And this is like five days before Christmas where they splash that article and we get this like insane death threat. What 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 did they say? It was like, I mean, it's, it's such a cliche. It's, I swear to God, I'm not making this up. It was a guy with like a thick Southern accent, you know, we're going to kill you. You're the son of a whore and we're going to kill you and your mama's a mama's a whore. We're going to get you. You're coming after the right. We're coming after you. Like literally verbatim. That was a version of what it was. Oh my God. And so that night we just threw our shit in a bag and drove down to Pennsylvania and got there at like, you know, 1.30 in the morning. So that was like, that was a part where it didn't feel like a game. I had been unaware of Steve Bannon. It really in a sort of a deep way until Breitbart started attacking me. And I never heard from him. And frankly, I was, you know, kind of scared shitless by these guys because they were making me the target of the entire American right wing. So how did you know that Bannon was involved? Well, I knew he was involved because he controlled Breitbart, right? These things were being put on the front page. More of this conversation after the break. Anybody who has a sibling knows that sibling fights are unavoidable. But what if every fight you had was under a microscope, on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince Harry and Prince William. They'd been each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother. But that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wandry's podcast, Disintel, is hosted by comedians Sidney Battle and Matt Belisai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle? Or was it something that began much earlier? Follow Disintel on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Back in the 90s, Pepsi and Coca-Cola were in a heated race to try and win loyal customers by any means necessary. But when Pepsi launched an ambitious promotion that encouraged people to buy Pepsi and redeem points for prizes, they overlooked their own fine print in a major way. On each episode of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop, comedians join host Misha Brown to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question. Who thought this was a good idea? 
Like, who at Pepsi thought it would be a good idea to advertise that people could earn enough points to redeem a military jet as a prize? When they launched their Pepsi points system, they never imagined somebody might actually try to snag it. But a 23-year-old did, and suddenly, Pepsi owed him a jet. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. You're listening to Infamous from Campside Media. So so your book comes out, and then what's the next step with Bannon? I got an email from a guy named Kurt Bardella, who at the time was um, a Republican strategist, PR operative, and he was doing PR for, for Breitbart. And that afternoon, I got an email from Kurt that said that the Breitbart guys have been enjoying your coverage of late. And the repost of your piece has generated more than 2,000 comments. This guy, Kurt, said, I uh, thought I'd reach out to say, if you ever wanted to meet with Bannon on background, I think he'd be definitely willing to touch base with you. Let me know. Happy to connect you. And I was like, what the fuck is this? Like, these <laughs> yeah. guys had, like, set out to destroy my reputation, and now they enjoy my articles. It showed, like, in one email, I revealed, like, the entire, like, hypocrisy and how full of shit the entire right wing is, right? I think they view the only thing that matters is the game and winning. And it's very situational. Whatever is best at any given moment is they're cool, they're down with, right? So when Ailes was powerful and Bannon wanted to curry favor with Ailes, he was happy to destroy my reputation and and write these hateful things. And then when Ailes had sort of been diminished in power and Trump was on the way up, you know, Bannon thought that I could be useful to him and reached out. And so what happened after that? So I get this email and I think like on several levels, on one hand, I wanted to like sit down with him and be like, you fucking asshole. But then on the other hand, there was this like weird fascination I had, right? Like this guy had been such a part of my psyche for three years and and now I had a chance to like meet with him. I think that's, and you get this as a reporter, you know, you can find pe- you people that you on a sort of a personal level, you know, despise, right? But there's a kind of a intellectual curiosity about who are they? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I um, I agreed to the lunch right away. And not long after that, I went to the Bryant Park Cafe in Midtown, Manhattan, and it was just Bannon. There was no no PR guy. He was at a table, you know, like furiously on his iPhone. And I sat down and he was super garrulous and friendly. And he was like, good to meet you. And I think the first thing he said was, I loved your book. <laughs> and like, that's either like a case of epic trolling or just, again, shows you how like, how much right. of a game it is. Yeah. And I think I called him on it. I was like, oh, yeah, so that's why you ran all those stories like about how I was like the devil. And he's like, oh, those were love taps. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what does that mean? <laughs> I guess it means if they really wanted to go after me, like I'd be dead <laughs> or something. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> but then we had this two-hour lunch where it was just like this you know, media political gossip session where we were just like com- comparing notes on all these lunatics that are in the world. And this is another thing I learned about Steve from that first lunch is he loves reporters, right? Because reporters have information. They like to gossip. They're about the game. And and that's what he is. And he 
being savvy and manipulative, he understands how to give reporters what they want so they think they're getting something super juicy and insidery when in fact they're also doing what he wants. After that lunch, we exchanged phone numbers and I had a channel to him and it just developed like any other reporter source relationship. He, you know, I would have, I would, you know, trade gossip with him and, you know, work on stories and it took time to, to develop a real um, working relationship. And what about him lying to you? I would assume he just lies like Yeah, like exactly. Air. I, as much as anyone, having been the target of Bannon's campaign, knows that everything is a transaction. And I have to always sort of filter what he's telling me through what does it do for him, right? Mm-hmm. What is, this might be like a juicy piece of gossip, but like, what is it, how does this help Steve Bannon? So, you know, I also learned pretty quickly on that he was talking to almost every other national political reporter. Like, <laughs> you know, the guy who hates journalism was like one of the biggest sources for the political press corps. And I think this speaks to part of what makes him such a sophisticated operator is there's a lot of right-wing people like Rush Limbaugh and Ann Coulter and Laura Ingram. They hate the press, right? And they just think of them as the enemy and they don't engage. Whereas Bannon realized that to actually change the politics in America, you can't do it only in the right-wing bubble. You need to speak to the mainstream media and cultivate the mainstream media, which he did. And I think that takes that shows a level of savvy because all these other people just are filled with so much rage. They won't even like put that aside to sit down with the press. Infamous will be right back. I've always struggled with finding time to manage my finances. At the end of a busy week, the last thing I want to do is spend time budgeting all of my expenses or tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions I no longer use. But now I use Rocket Money and it does all that for me. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. I can see all my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com infamous. That's rocketmoney.com infamous. Rocketmoney.com infamous. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. So, okay, so now you guys are in contact mm-hmm. and he's becoming a source for you. And he's also, how how does this dovetail with him getting in with Trump? Well, so, yeah, so this was the summer of 2015. Trump is leading the Republican primary. You would sit with me and people would say, wow, he is such a fine person. He a lot of people a- still think just- Trump is a joke. Donald, uh, you're not going to be able to insult your way to the presidency. That's not going to happen. And I 
uh, not to pat myself on the back, but like I was one of the few reporters who actually took Trump's campaign seriously because I knew how Ailes had conditioned the the Republican base to like like this spectacle style of politics that Trump was selling. And so um, I was writing about Trump and Bannon liked my coverage because, frankly, I was taking him seriously. And so how does he how does his relationship with Trump um, continue to the point that he gets in the White House? Basically, over time, as the Trump campaign was this, you know, out of control car with no brakes, there's this like big sit down meeting where Trump brings in Steve Bannon to be the chief strategist and Kellyanne Conway to be the manager. And they take over in the home stretch of the 2016 campaign and brought a level of discipline to Trump that had been lacking up to that point. And if you look at Trump's uh, performance, he really just focused on the same set of things. China, 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 China. Anti-China, anti-immigrant. Uh, pro-worker. It was like this populist. It actually was a populist message. And then on top of the fact like the Russians hacked all the emails. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. I think Bannon really kept Trump focused on the issues that were appealing to the base. And and that paid off because, you know, he won. And so I think that's Bannon's biggest contribution to to the Trump campaign, which was actually bringing some, you know, ideological cohesion to it. So, you know, after Trump wins the election, which Trump, you know, rightly credited Steve with playing a big part in, Steve Bannon's star rising very fast within the administration. Steve helped write the famous Trump inauguration speech. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. And shortly thereafter, Trump signed an executive order that named Steve Bannon to the Principals Committee, which is like a part of the West Wing that has control over national security policy. And while Bannon had served in the U.S. Navy, he was not a member of the military. He was he was a civilian and now was having as much you know, power over our foreign policy as the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the Pentagon. So, you know, the the winter and spring of 2017, Trump's first six months in office, was really the apex of Bannon's power. The thing is, just a few months later, Steve Bannon would get the boot. And now he'd find himself on the outside of Trump's inner circle. And that meant that his relationship with Gabe was going to turn upside down. That's next time on Infamous. Infamous is a production of Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment. It's created, executive produced, and hosted by Gabriel Sherman and me, Vanessa Grigoriadis. Shoshish Molovitz is our managing producer and editor. Rajiv Gola is our senior producer and editor. And Lily Houston-Smith is our associate producer. This episode was sound designed by David Devereaux and recorded by Ewan Lai Tremuin. Some of this reporting appeared in Vanity Fair magazine. See you next week.